Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, glad you have chosen to spend a little bit of time with us and we're really honored this episode to be joined by our longtime colleague, Dr. Craig Blomberg. Craig, welcome back. Thank you very much. Well, uh, some of you will know this, some of you will not, but Craig is soon to be retiring and become Professor Emeritus of New Testament. But for the last 35 years, uh, Craig has been Professor of New Testament here at Denver Seminary, joined the faculty in 1986, and through both his teaching and his publications, has uh, had literally an international influence, and we're really proud of Craig and grateful for his years of service here at Denver Seminary. So we thought it'd be good to have a uh, a swan song. Is it that, is that too melodramatic? Um, to it's not. Once I Googled it, because I only knew that as an expression of what somebody did just before they died. Yeah, but no, it's. Not I learned that. that it could also be just before you retired. Right. So then I felt better. Yeah, swan song is like your last rendition, your last performance. Uh, so this is, uh, in the truest sense of the word, a uh, swan song for Craig as he uh, moves into emeritus status. Thankfully, he'll still be around and doing a little bit of teaching here uh, as emeritus professor. Thanks for spending some time. Wanted to get some reflections from you as you wind up this part of your full-time teaching career anyway. So we're, we're grateful to have Thank you for having s- me. some time to do that. Um, you'll also be interested, I, I hope and think, to know that we have a newly endowed chair of New Testament studies uh, in honor of Craig. So our colleague, Dr. Joey Dodson, um, is, has been named Dr. Craig L. Blomberg Professor of New Testament this coming uh, academic year. Actually, that goes into effect January 1 of 2022. So congratulations on that, Craig. Thank you. Yeah, Joey asked me out of the blue at a faculty meeting what my middle name was, and I didn't have any context for that. <laughs> I told him, and then I realized it because that was part of the title. He wanted to know what it stood for. Uh, yeah, it's now part of his faculty title, so he needs to know your middle name, evidently. <laughs> I won't ask what it is. Um, well, then I won't tell you. Okay, all right. Um, I, I pulled off my bookshelf right before we came over here and then uh, just as quickly forgot to bring them, a stack of your books, and I only have, a, am sure, a partial stack of the books you've written. How many have you written all together? Do you recall? It all depends on how you count. <laughs> Because I have done probably a dozen with uh, other people, either as co-authors or co-editors. So I've probably done 15 or 16 by myself. But if you count the others, then we're somewhere in the upper 20s. Okay. All right. And your most recent, I think, was uh, a co-authored, right, with Darlene Seal? Is that the most the recent? Most, the most recent book is a revised edition of From Pentecost to Patmos that uh, Darlene and I did together, yes. Okay. That's just released. What has been your favorite book you've written or the one you have been most happy with, most satisfied with? That's a little bit like asking which child you like the most. Um, but Not if you ask me that. Cause I, <laughs> 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 uh, 
Not, not about my children, but about my books. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Um, one of the things that propelled me into this profession was uh, a desire to uh, defend the reliability of Scripture. And unlike many young scholars who first publish something that is a, a revision uh, directly of their Ph.D. work, um, I did that second. That was my work on interpreting the parables, um, but had the chance to uh, do the historical reliability of the Gospels as my first published book, and it also has had the privilege of, of having a second edition. Um, I don't know if it's the work I'm most proud of, but it's the topic that probably I'm most passionate about. And so when I first wrote it, it never dawned on me that it might stay in print more than five, seven, eight mm. years, mm. much less uh, that 20 years later people would say it's time for a second edition. Um, I've had that experience now with other books as well, but yeah, there's still something about the first thing you do that's special. Okay. Now, just a couple of years ago, you published uh, your biblical theology. Uh, was it two years ago? New Testament theology, 2018 now, yeah. Yeah. Is, would you consider that your magnum opus? That's funny, because uh, somebody at, at Baylor University Press decided to put that on the back cover, um, and uh, I had never thought of it in those terms, um, and I still have other things in the works. Uh, I don't know that I've ever thought about anything as somehow being a magnum opus. That just sounds too much like Robin Williams, I think. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Holland's opus? Yes. Yeah, okay. This may be another difficult question to answer, but I'm wondering about the scope of impact of your books, particularly your book that you co-authored with Bill Klein and Bob Hubbard on biblical interpretation. Uh, Would you consider that one of the most widely distributed or widely impactful books, or maybe another one? That one, and uh, Jesus and the Gospels, an introduction survey that uh, I'm now uh, just about have finished a third edition uh, those are the two that have had the most uh, textbook use around the English-speaking world um, and have been translated into several other languages. Uh, another boon that I never dreamed of when, when I was first starting out my career. I think one of the things that particularly helped Jesus in the Gospels was that uh, we deliberately worked to get it co-published by a British publisher, mm. which would then touch the rest of the, the British Commonwealth in a way that uh, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation with its publisher doesn't necessarily do, and yet um, there are some people overseas who have used it, and, and I've been pleased to learn about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I encountered that when I was studying overseas, people were using that text. So you've been here at Denver Seminary 35 years, and I believe you taught for five years, was it, prior to that at Palm Beach Atlantic? Three. Three years, okay. So over your teaching career, what has been most satisfying to you? Certainly the 35 in Denver. <laughs> um, Good answer. <laughs> I think something that I picked up from the first president I served under um, Haddon Robinson for my first five years at Denver um, has 
stuck with me and I think whether consciously or unconsciously been represented by um, administrations and faculty ever since. Uh, I, I like to tell students when they ask uh, why they should come to Denver and just looking at the scenery doesn't clinch it for them, uh, that um, we have, and as far as I can tell from the outset, always been a school with uh, very uh, high academic standards. Um, we don't want to produce people who are pious and friendly and pastoral but can't think or deal with the text of Scripture or the great issues of the day. But an episode that kind of epitomized uh, Haddon's uh, agenda was when Dallas Seminary, where he had taught before coming to us, had for many years had uh, an annual conference called the Conference on Biblical Exposition. And Haddon wanted to do something which um, unfortunately didn't outlast his presidency when he moved us and, and went on, but I think for three years uh, we had something called the Conference on Relevant Exposition. I remember that, core, the core conference. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and the point was you can do the scholarship at the highest level, but if you can't make it relevant to the church, to the individual believer, to the non-believer, to a lost world, then, um, then what's the point? And I know of top-flight seminaries where if you start talking too long in the classroom about contemporary application, there are some people who think they're getting cheated out of the content of the course. Um, that's never been a case, uh, never been a problem that I've sensed at Denver. And so that combination of scholarship and contemporary relevance has been something I've appreciated all these years. Hmm. You know, it's not uncommon for scholars over over a lifetime of scholarship to have their views kind of mature or maybe shift or, or rebalance, reproportion in, in different ways. And I'm curious over your teaching and scholarship career, have, have you changed your mind or changed your views about anything? Hopefully not the Trinity or, you know, any like big ticket items, but. Yeah, I wouldn't be uh, <laughs> signing our would Would still be statement. here, but yeah, um, just wondering how your mind has changed over the years. One of the fascinating areas, and I don't know that I have changed all that much, but how I talk about things has certainly changed, uh, is the whole convoluted area of gender roles in home and church. When I came, there were a handful of very articulate egalitarians on our faculty, but the sizable majority were clearly complementarian. And today, I know of a couple of people who are very soft, borderline complementarians, but almost everybody uh, is egalitarian. And so I remember one of my colleagues saying, uh, we had a conversation uh, again in my first years here, and uh, I said, I like to think of myself as 
sitting on the fence. Um, I see a lot of biblical truth in the arguments on each side. I certainly reject the extremes of the debate. Um, if you could get people to pronounce complegalitarian um, fluently, I'd want to be in that camp. Um, but I, I see myself, well, maybe I shouldn't say top of the fence because then, then that can be prickly, but sitting on the top of a wall. And this colleague of mine who was an egalitarian said, no, no, you're not. You're on the, the complementarian side, but you're pushing hard against the wall from the ground. Um, and I never accepted that response. I mean, we didn't keep debating about it. Um, but a few years ago, Michelle Lee Barnwall from Biola University published a book called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. And it's all about leadership. And the most haunting image she gives is she says, we talk a lot about servant leadership. Christians know in their heart of hearts they should be servant leaders. But the way we come at it is we look for people who are leaders. And then if they need to become more servant-oriented in their hearts, we try to push them in that direction. What we need to be doing is identifying people who are servants. And then if they need it, we'll try to teach them some leadership qualities. Mm. Mm. And I honestly think that's a third position. I don't see it represented among complementarians or egalitarians because most of the rhetoric is about rights, about power, about privilege, um, about equality, and uh, I just don't see a lot of that in Scripture. Yeah, it's interesting. The The way that conversation has been framed so often, even among evangelical Christians, does not follow the the contours of the of the biblical narrative. It's not framed in the same way that the conversation seems to take place in Scripture. I mean, mm. we can certainly see that in, in recent political debates. Um, I would have thought it was fairly non-controversial to say that if you study the, the grand narrative Scripture from Genesis to Revelation— the idea of God's people having responsibilities that um, trump or temper or mitigate the freedom in Christ that we have, that that would not have been uh, a controversial thing to say. But the number of evangelicals, including some of my colleagues, fortunately not many, um, who have told me straight out, no, Freedom is more central to Scripture than responsibility. That just blows me away, and mm. I don't see it anywhere. Mm. Mm. Craig, what, what continues to excite you about New Testament studies at this stage in your career? The Bible. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Uh, again, I think back to a conversation from the early 1990s with a group of Denver area uh, Bible professors. Um, most of the schools were represented. Um, it wasn't just an evangelical gathering. And we were talking in the context of an organization called the Society of Biblical Literature that, that welcomes people uh, 
every year to huge conferences of sometimes as many as 10,000 people. Anybody who teaches on the Bible from any perspective at any um, tertiary-level school. Um, and people were commenting on what they, were, what they liked and what they were disappointed with about the meeting meetings. And when it came to my turn, I just said, I wish we could, would focus more on texts, texts of Scripture, and the man in that gathering, who was my counterpart at another seminary in the Denver area, um, and perhaps the most liberal person in that entire gathering, immediately said, yes, I agree with you. Because he realized, he grew up evangelical and then rejected it. He realized that what it comes down to is, what do these texts mean? What do they claim? What, do they, what kind of claim do they make on readers? And the guild can so easily study methods, study backgrounds, study interdisciplinary intersections with other areas of thought, all of which can be valuable. Um, but one can go to a half-day-long seminar at a New Testament conference and not necessarily open a book of Scripture. Yeah. You're reminding me of a comment. This may not be original to him, but my doctoral mentor uh, once talked about discussions of method being akin to clearing one's throat before one sings. And at some point, you simply have to sing. <laughs> you have to stop clearing your throat and sing. That's right. Stop Stop lining up the uh, the ball for the field goal attempt and uh, actually and kick, kick it. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and hope the other side didn't call timeout at the last second. <laughs> yeah. You know, you and I both know that the, the landscape of theological education is changing and there are lots of either unemployed or underemployed uh, PhDs out there. But wh- why then do you think it's still important for people to study the New Testament uh, or any other part of Scripture or theology or in, in any of our classical disciplines at, at a doctoral level. What, why is that still important? Something I've heard over the years in a number of different contexts um, that I don't agree with, but I appreciate the sentiment behind it, is the statement, in an ideal world, every Christian should have a seminary education. Every Christian should be so committed to their faith and to sharing it with others that they should want to have the kind of background that you get, at least at a master's level. Now, I've never heard anybody ever say every Christian should get a Ph.D. in New Testament. But I think the logic of that answer is the same. There should always be a good cadre of people who understand the text and all the other collateral issues surrounding it um, in the kind of depth that we need people to have, both to serve the church, to minister to the world, to respond to skepticism and critics, and whether their professional employment comes from that uh, specialization is largely irrelevant. it certainly wasn't the case for the first several hundred years mm-hmm. of church history. Right. Um, 
and I have appreciated over the years the students, perhaps more today than ever, though I remember some from way back when, who came and said, I'm a business person, or I'm an elder in my church, and probably also a business person or teacher or whatever, but I just want this education because I know how important and how valuable it is. Mm-hmm. As you think about the future of New Testament studies and scholars of the generation to come, what do you think are some of the most pressing questions or issues that need attention? Without just repeating some of what I've already said, I think one area obviously is technology. And it's interesting that um, New Testament Abstracts, which is uh, a journal, you can get a hard copy online, that simply uh, three times a year under topical headings uh, lists uh, both articles and books uh, that have been published in that last period of time and gives about a, a short paragraph summary of what they say. It's, it's an invaluable resource. It probably wasn't until 15, 18 years ago that one of the section headings they have is computer-assisted studies. And that has continued to grow. Now, they haven't started because they're not focused on on pedagogy necessarily. Um, One called online education. But the intersection of any discipline of scholarship, but especially the communication of God's word, which so many of us, so many of us who grew up with people challenging us to think about how to finish um, the Great Commission, now has just unprecedented potential. Um, but like every new tool, it can be used well and it can be used poorly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's not a topic of New Testament studies per se, but and, and, and therefore it's not one that <coughs> scholars of any age are necessarily thinking as something they should go into. I, I want to become, somebody says, a, a specialist on Paul. And, oh, yeah, if I have to do it online, I'll learn the minimum amount of tech. No, no we, need, we need somebody who says, my calling is to figure out how technology can best be used to serve this discipline. There are other ways I could answer that question, too, but yeah. that's one that I don't think overlaps with other things we've yeah. talked about. Okay. Well, are, th- are there any textual issues that um, you think are, are really going to be the hot ones to, for the church to <laughs> you know, wrestle to the ground in the next generation? I met with uh, an alumnus uh, a couple of weeks ago who was a student here in the mid-'90s, and he obviously has very good memory because um, he quoted me on what was almost like an exit interview that he had with me before he left. And one of the questions he asked was, so what's going to be the, the burning issues? And we both laughed because so much has come up. I mean, who would have imagined COVID? Who right, would have, who right. would have imagined um, 9-11? 
who would have imagined um, the state of American politics? So many things that uh, um, weren't on our radar screen. Um, so I have been chastened in my attempts to make prophecy okay. download. However, um, one of the interesting things, uh, when you have something as small as the New Testament— I mean, imagine the church historian saying, you guys are so lucky. You get this tiny little book with 27 little <laughs> booklets in it, and we've got to study 2,000 years of endless writings. I've had church historians say that to me. That means that what goes around comes around. We've had a generation uh, on something called the New Perspective on Paul, that began with a blockbuster work in 1977, the year I graduated from college. And I don't know how anybody can do anything more with it than has been done. Um, I think— Yeah, with, with some areas, we kind of get to the law of diminishing returns, don't we? We do. Um, on the other hand, um, the historical Jesus, which has been uh, a very— uh, fruitful and debated topic. Somewhere around about 2010 or 2011 uh, fell off a cliff, and if you chart the number of works coming out each year, it has just been in precipitous decline, except for some folks who are saying the Gospel of John has for a long time gotten short shrift in this enterprise. We need a fourth quest of the historical Jesus. Uh, I'm currently writing a book on that. I want to be part of that, if it ever really does establish itself. I think there's a lot more that can be done with Jesus. Um, and We may want to just kind of lift that one comment out and, that's and, right. and frame, frame there's a lot more that can be that's done right. with Jesus. It, it you can go all kinds of directions. It, it reminds me of one of the favorite sayings in our house, when uh, our girls were still living at home, and one Saturday morning, I was looking for a, a book that I was reading by Richard Bauckham, a British scholar called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And I thought I had left it downstairs. The three women in my household, my wife and two daughters, were all upstairs, but they were within earshot. So I just called out, has anybody seen Jesus and, his eye, and, and the eyewitnesses? <laughs> That's just become a very memorable statement. <laughs> That's funny. Craig, as you look back over your career, if you if you had a do-over, what would you do differently, <laughs> if anything? I think um, in my earliest years, I was overly influenced by some very good and very godly people from different levels of education that I had who nevertheless um, saw the epitome of being a biblical scholar as also climbing the academic ladder. Craig, how would you like to be, um, this sounds like a funeral question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, let, me, let me say this differently. How would you describe the type of legacy <laughs> you hope to leave? The uh, same alumnus who I had lunch with a couple of weeks ago um, is um, 
now the father of a young woman that I'm teaching in one of my classes. <clears throat> and she wanted to join our lunch, um, and she did. And at some point, um, this graduate asked me almost that identical question. Hmm. And I turned to his daughter and I said, no pressure, but you haven't even had one full class from me yet, but you've had most of it. What do you think my overall goals are in teaching? She's a very bright student. Um, and she thought, and she said, well, I think you're trying to stress the importance of the New Testament, of the Bible, for all the main issues of Christian life and ministry, and you really want us to interpret it well. And her dad just broke out laughing and said, yeah, he hasn't changed in 30 years. Um, she could not have paid me a higher compliment. Um, if 20 years from now, uh, the seminary isn't teaching the New Testament anymore, <laughs> then I won't God have a forbid. legacy. <laughs> um, or if they're teaching it in the way that maybe some schools around the world do that's not terribly balanced with uh, interpretive uh, constraints, then I won't have left a good legacy either. But if, if we are still putting scripture at the foundation of, of everything in life and figuring out how to avoid just imposing what we want something to mean on the text, uh, but what it actually originally meant and how it applies today, then I'll be thrilled. Mm. Amen to that. Hear, hear. Craig, thanks. You're very this welcome. This has been just a treat. And thanks for, for the 35 years. And I, f I feel like I'm getting kind of maudlin and sentimental here. Thanks. For, I want to break out in song of thanks for the memories or whoever <laughs> sang that. But, but literally, just for the, for the many forms of investment, the mentoring, the teaching, the the scholarship, the books, and the humor, and, and maybe even the puns periodically. Um, thanks for all that. You've, you've I finally made a convert out of one of my two daughters. So in our household, if we're all four together, there are now two who really like puns and two who don't. It's not the one versus three it was for so many years. <laughs> well, I guess that's got to be gratifying to you in some perverse <laughs> way. <laughs> Greg, thanks. And um, just encourage our listeners to... Uh, check out books of yours, and there are many, so I won't name any one of those or uh, review all of that. We talked about that earlier, but there are plenty out there and evidently a few more yet to come. So we'll, we'll look Lord forward willing. to the Lord continuing to give you the gifts and the graces to um, continue that scholarly work into for how, however many more years to come. And if graduates come by looking for my office and not finding it, know that there's a good chance I'm still around, but you're going to have to email to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, friends, this, again, has been Engage 360 with Dr. Craig Blomberg, uh, who will soon be retiring, but thankfully still be around and still be investing in the students' lives here at Denver Seminary as Professor Emeritus. Uh, we're glad you've taken the time to 
engage with us here on Engage 360, and we hope you'll continue to do that in, in lots of ways. You can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu if you have a comment or a question or a suggestion of some type. Uh, we hope you'll check out our website, denverseminary.edu, because there are lots and lots of good resources, whether you're a student or not, um, webinars and um, publications of various sorts that will benefit your life and your church and your, your own Christian walk. So we want that to be a benefit to you and hope you'll stay in touch with us and let us know how we can serve you. My name is Don Payne again, and we look forward to another conversation with you real soon. Take care.